Just when J. Edgar Hoover was starting his controversial career with the FBI, several wealthy Osage Indians were found murdered under suspicious circumstances. Vast oil reserves had been found beneath their land, and outsiders quickly tried to take advantage of the Osage's newfound prosperity. Their most common scheme involved marriage and murder. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. I'm so glad you've joined me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening right now, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is Season 4, Episode 38. Our book this week is Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant, and our guest is Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer. Sarah is an author, speaker, member of the Choctaw Nation, and is a Choctaw storyteller. She writes historical fiction that features truly authentic American Indian characters. And for my writer friends, she also offers a digital course all about creating those authentic characters in your writing. We'll check in with Sarah after we investigate this fascinating book. If you're a Leonardo DiCaprio or Martin Scorsese fan, you're probably as excited for the movie based on this book to come out as I am. I love history and I love true crime, so this book really hit it out of the park for me. At one time, members of the Osage Nation were among the wealthiest groups of people per capita on the entire planet. Because of the Oklahoma oil boom, life was good until the murders started. Believing that the Osage would not be able to manage their new wealth and lobbied by white people who wanted a piece of what the Osage had, Congress passed a law in 1921 which required that courts appoint guardians for each of the Osage of half-blood or more in ancestry, and those guardians would manage the Osage's royalties and financial affairs. Now, doesn't that just sound like an absolute recipe for abuse? It began with cases of unexplained illnesses and poisoning, but quickly escalated into brutal killings that shocked even the surrounding community. Sixty or probably more Osage Indians were reported killed from 1918 to 1931. And can you imagine if something like that were happening today, the kind of media frenzy that it would produce? The newly formed FBI decided that they would step in and investigate the case and it was one of the earliest major murder investigations for J. Edgar Hoover's team. Osage woman Molly Burkhart had a sister named Anna who was one of the first to die under mysterious circumstances. Molly was determined that she was going to uncover the truth about what happened to her sister. Anna's death was ruled accidental due to alcohol poisoning, and local authorities investigated no further. The same day her body was found, So was that of her cousin Charles. He'd been shot to death. Later, yet another cousin was murdered. A white man claimed to be the beneficiary of that cousin's life insurance policy. Then another of Molly's sisters died, this time in a bombing. So many Osage were dying, and their property was being inherited by their guardians. Again, those local white men, a lot of them lawyers and businessmen. Local police either couldn't or wouldn't solve these cases, so the FBI was brought in. Using a combination of public-facing and undercover investigators, their suspicions quickly focused on a local businessman and his nephew. Those men had targeted Molly's family, all because of their greed. 
and I'm not going to give you any more spoilers. I really would like for you to get this book and read it for yourself. It's extremely well told, and it brings to life a part of American history that I'll bet most of us had never heard about. I know I hadn't. It also has exceptional lessons about greed, racism, and betrayal. David Grand did a wonderful job bringing the Osage culture to life, and we're so fortunate today to have author Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer with us to talk about some of those same things. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today, because this is just a topic that fascinates me, and I think you're going to give us some incredible practical wisdom today. Oh, Halito, Lori. Thank you for having me on today. Everyone, again, uh, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer. Hi, my name is Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, and I am Choctaw. I'm a tribal member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, as Lori mentioned, and I'm really grateful for this opportunity to, to be on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on, Lori. This book absolutely just grabbed my attention and wouldn't let go. I love historical fiction. Well, this isn't fiction. I I do love historical fiction, but I love Mm -hmm. history. And the themes in this story are so compelling. And I was fascinated by the Tulsa world. They interviewed the author, David Gron, and they asked him why he wrote the book. And he said, in part, his inspiration was his own ignorance of this story. And I'm guessing that quite a few of us are really pretty ignorant about the issues facing American Indians, Native Americans, whatever term people want to use. You know, it's not that much different now as it was then. So tell us what some of the most damaging misperceptions are. And I, I think you, you've already touched on it is pe- the ignorance and people just don't know what goes on in Indian country. We had this this movement or this ideology in around the turn of the century, going into the 20th century, that American Indians were disappearing. They were known as, quote, the vanishing race. And there were many non-natives who did make a great effort to preserve history and culture. There were thousands of photographs taken. Uh, there was ethnologists, all of these people who were coming together and trying to preserve it because it was a very strongly pushed out their idea of, American Indians are disappearing. And if we don't preserve this culture, it it won't be there in the 20th century. And so that became, I think, a prevalent theme throughout the 20th century is that American Indians were no more as as a people group, as a distinct race, and were largely forgotten about. And if they they were known, it was just in this sense of people being fascinated by them or, you know, to the other extreme of the prejudices and, and racism that we see Uh, throughout the 20th century. And that's why today, a lot of people don't have their ancestry, because in the 20th century, it was more acceptable even to be known as Black Dutch than to be an American Indian. So if people could pass as Black Dutch, they would do that. The elders who were first language speakers, their native language was their first language, and then they had to learn English. Um, They didn't pass their language on to their kids. They didn't pass their heritage on because there was just this shame and just, it'll be easier for you to assimilate into the white culture. So if you can pass as white, if you can pass as anything except Indian, that would be the route you you would want to take. So that became a, a theme in the 20th century, the, the stereotypes that were perpetuated by Hollywood. And again, largely it would set Indians in the, in the 19th century or before that didn't portray them in a modern sense. So people didn't and still today 
don't know what Indians are like today, what American Indians are like. They don't even know that they still exist or that our cultures are still thriving through uh, powwows and language revitalization programs and education and all of these things. They don't have a clear idea of what Indian country looks like. And I think that's one of the most damaging things that we have today in, in mainstream society. You brought up racism, and that is a huge theme in this book. And it was really interesting to me how it took a unique way that it played out in the domestic violence situations that were described over and over and over, and and not just beatings, but murders. And it was really, it almost felt over the top if it had been fiction, But but it was real. It was true. It's been documented. Is that still an issue today where non-Native people try to latch on to people that maybe get a tribal stipend or anything like that? That could, it depends on the tribe, because what we have today is people think of all American Indians as one under one set of regulations or rules or something. And the tribes have always you know, we're, we're a sovereign nation like the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. We're a sovereign nation. And so we get to make a lot of our guidelines and rules and our, we have a constitution and all of these things. So in the 19th century, if you were intermarried, yes, you did have, you became an intermarried Choctaw citizen and had full rights to not only your spouse's property, but any of the resources in the Choctaw Nation. So there was a great deal of conflict of intermarried whites who were selling off resources and timber and coal and and oil and gas, all of those things. And so nowadays, that's not the case. If you marry someone who's Choctaw, you don't automatically become a Choctaw citizen. You don't have, you're more just under the, whatever the state regulations are that of the state state that you're living in. So it just depends if you're Pine Ridge Reservation with South Dakota, with the Lakotas, if you're in Oklahoma, you know, these different things, it just really depends on the tribe and how they set up who has rights to these things. And that's where it gets really complicated because whose jurisdiction are you under? If you're on the reservation, are you under the jurisdiction of the state, the Indian tribe, or the the United States government, the federal government? And there's a lot of conflict. There is, there's another nonfiction book that I read, and when she interviewed some people in the school system said, if someone reported an allegation of abuse against a child, who would you, or or suspected it, who would you report that to? And she received three different answers in the same school. One was tribal police, one was the, the local sheriff's department, and one was, you know, federal agency. And that's why a lot of these crimes are not solved and not resolved is people don't even know who to call if they suspect a, a criminal activity or someone's being abused. Back to your question, if someone's married into it, again, it just goes back to what do the states, what do the tribes require? Can they access their check? Can they, you know, uh, commit the same atrocities that were committed with the the Osage murders um, so that it just largely depends? And a lot of safeguards have been put in place with that, or you would hope or think that. Um, and again, that comes down to individual tribes, but very common back um, in the time period we're talking about. I'm glad you brought up the concept of sovereign nation, because I think that's something that a lot of people just simply aren't aware of, that there is a huge confusion, as you were describing, when crimes happen because the tribes are sovereign. And so certain law enforcement agencies can't work on tribal lands 
different laws apply depending on where certain activities happened. There was even recently a Supreme Court case that, if I'm remembering correctly, the issue was if someone was stopped on a public road that ran through tribal land. Well, then who has jurisdiction? I I wonder if that plays into the fact, you know, if you go on the website for the U.S. Department of Interior, they state that Native American and Alaska Natives, the rates of murder, rape, and other violent crimes are all higher than national averages. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if that, um, that conflict with jurisdiction, that conflict of law, and people just not really understanding procedurally how to handle things. And maybe there is still some racism wrapped up in that too. That's that's absolutely the case. I've been to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, and they are um, the third or the number one poorest county in the United States. And one of the the issues is it's it's known that you can go onto the reservation and commit a crime, and no one can prosecute you. And that's that's the other complicated thing is. It even comes to race of who you call and who has jurisdiction over you. So if you're native on an Indian reservation, could you be arrested by, say, the county sheriff? Not necessarily. If you're white, you could be arrested. But do you have the authority to arrest someone who's on the Indian reservation? And if you're white, do the Indian police have the authority to arrest you? So that's where it just gets so incredibly complicated and specifically talking about a case of abuse. And I don't know the details of this case, and I I don't really like sharing, you know, just rumored stories on Facebook, but this is an example of someone who posted um, that they were trying to get help for their brother who was disabled and his girlfriend was beating up on him. He was Choctaw living on, on his family's allotment. And they were told that the local police couldn't come because it was Indian land and the tribal police couldn't do anything because she was white and she was basically kicking him out of his own home. And they were saying that nobody could do anything about it. Again, I don't know all the details of that case, but that is an example that that could actually happen, you know, with with dealing with Indian land and local law enforcement. In the books that I write, uh, my Choctaw Tribune series set in the 1890s, I'm dealing with a lot of that because you had you think about True Grit, you know, the the book and the movie of the Indian, the, the marshals, the United States marshals coming from Fort Smith, because they were the only ones who did have jurisdiction to go in and arrest a white person who was committing a crime. In, and that's why the outlaws fled to Indian territory, because the, the local you know county sheriff couldn't chase them across across the line. So I think there's also another misperception that when we think about Native lands, groups of Native Americans that are still very much a community, that it's all out West. It's all out in the desert. But there's, and I'll put a link to this episode in the show notes. I did an episode earlier. There's a very large group in South Carolina, largest one, um, I believe, east of the Mississippi. And so the Lumbee tribe, I believe. And there, I'm sure there's others. That's just one I happen to be aware of. And so are, are we just willfully blind that this seems to be something that you just don't see a lot of attention given to? I don't know that it's willful so much. We do have issues of, of race and, and racism in the United States. I don't believe it's as prevalent as sometimes we want to immediately point to. There are situations that, well, Let me back up. So historically, 
we have had so much prejudice and we've had so many things stolen from our people. We've had so many abuses that if there isn't a, a situation of abuse, it sometimes we jump to immediately it's because of race. And we're dealing in a, in a broken world full of evil people in all races. And when we talk about crimes committed on reservations and stuff, we're not only talking about white people committing these crimes and, and getting away with it because of the confusion. You know, one of my questions is, you know, where were the men stepping up to protect their women? And, you know, that that's something that always hits me in the heart. But, you know, to your question, I, I don't know that it's so much willful ignorance. I think it's it's just, again, we were the vanishing race. And mm. so American Indians aren't really given a lot of thought outside of historical context, you know, to be seen in a, in a modern perspective, except through the stereotypical portrayals that, that we see. I know a professor, he's Cherokee, and he went to Germany and he was teaching. And a lady came up to him after his lecture and asked him, and she was completely serious. She said, did, did you ride here on a horse? It's, he said, no, I took a plane and then a, a Uber, and, you know, but it's just these, these stereotypes are unbelievably, and, and they're just so ingrained in American society. I used to work down at a trades days at Canton. A lot of people know um, First Monday trades days around here. I had a lady come up to me at this jewelry booth that I worked at and my boss, this wasn't something that we carried, but another vendor was going out of business and she'd stuck some stuff with ours. And so this lady brought this pendant up and she said, I have a question. I said, Sure. And she said, is this a savage? And I looked at her and I looked at it and it was an Indian, like an Indian nickel, you know, head, mm -hmm. arrowhead, you know, Indian head, um, nickel kind of pendant. And I had never seen it before. Like I said, it came in from this other vendor. And I just looked at her and I was like, I don't even know what to say. And she said, well, let me explain. It's like my sister works at a school and their mascot is, are the savages. So I wanted to get this for her, but I wanted to make sure this was a savage. Uh, so I went in wow. I for about 10 minutes and, and then finally, and we had a great conversation and then and finally she was just like, Oh, I don't know that I should have said that. That sounded really bad, didn't it? Yeah. And I was just like, it's so, I don't think it's so much willful ignorance, but it's definitely ignorance. And it's because of all of the stereotypes in our mainstream society that we have. And that's why I put out the books that I do, you know, and, and people thank me all the time because they're like, I wasn't taught this in school. What I was taught wasn't correct. And, you know, I just so grateful to be getting, you know, an inside of, of what your people, you know, actually were and, and reflecting it today. Let's talk some more about your books because you are a storyteller. And I firmly believe that we are wired to learn through stories. And on your website, you say that just as there's harsh reality, enduring hope and incredible beauty rise from the ashes. So we've talked about the harsh realities, but tell us more about the enduring hope and the incredible beauty. Oh, thank you. I would love to because it does get really heavy. You know, these are these are not light topics that we're dealing with. They're very heavy and, and complex. But what I like to think about, I love to think about with my ancestors is the legacy that they left us, the legacy of faith. And, you know, my great, great, great grandfather, William Roebuck, crossed on the Trail of Tears as a young boy. He buried his father on the trail, who was actually a white man and was an intermarried Choctaw. And he traveled with his Choctaw family. He didn't separate from them when they were being removed from our homelands in Mississippi. And so he buried buried his father there. And, you know, it's his legacy that I'm I'm living and the things that he did, the things that he advocated for. And it was, it was our Christian faith with the Choctaw Nation so largely 
I just, the more we research, the more I'm, I'm blown away by how, you know, a lot of, um, sadly, um, and that, that gets into the, the heavier uh, aspect with a lot of the tribes where Christianity was forced on them. And that, that's tragic. That's not what we were called to do. But with the Choctaw Nation, we actually invited the missionaries into our sovereign nation. They wouldn't have been allowed there um, had they not been invited in for education. But very specifically, they wanted to know God. They wanted to know the Bible. They wanted to be taught those things. And you know, not all Choctaws were for that, but I do believe there was a real revival there. Um, and I bring that out in Toshpa's story with my, my novella of a band of full-blood Choctaws who they were you know, isolated and they were debating about removing themselves. And they learned their homes were being burned behind them. And they wanted to go back and you know, take up vengeance and one of them stood up and he imitated a missionary that he'd heard and said, we've got to put down our, our muskets and our knives. We can't be this vengeful race of people that we were before. You know, I heard a missionary and, and he preached from this book. And I believe this book makes a man new, whether he is white, red, black. And even though the white man doesn't do all the things it says, you know, I believe this book makes a man new. And it's just an extraordinary story from 1834. And so his son, Toshba, pass that on to his son who wrote it in around the turn of the century. And so that's what that book is based on. And it goes on to follow Toshba's entire story as, as a young boy crossing the trail after his father's this extraordinary speech that the majority of the villagers raised their hands and put down their muskets and said, we'll, we'll follow this new way. And so it's, it's just really extraordinary. So that's the beauty and the hope rising from the ashes and the redemption that we see all the way through today to the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and what we've been able to to rebuild and, and recapture and continue on with our with our motto of faith, family, and culture, and the Ten Commandments on our Capitol grounds and being a declared Christian nation. So whenever I see the Choctaws who have embraced that and you you see the hope and the joy and the all night gospel singings and you know all of the things that you know we definitely have issues in the Choctaw Nation and in, in, you know, all of these things that we've talked about and, and other things, but that's the hope and beauty that I always want to continue to bring out in my stories and just our beautiful culture and, and the things that we were able to redeem from our culture, um, the, the art, the language, all of those that I'm just very grateful for. I got chills when you told that story and I thought how we need to hear that today. You know, we may not carry muskets, but boy, we carry around a lot of anger. And yeah, if we could all lay that down and not be the vengeful people we've become in this mm. country, what an amazing lesson. So I, I'm sure all of your books have wonderful lessons in there. And I would think that probably a lot of people would think, well, this this doesn't really affect my life. I don't know anybody who is a Native American. I don't know anybody who has that heritage. But I bet you've got a different viewpoint on how important this is for us all to know about. Absolutely. I meet Choctaws everywhere I go. <laughs> Even when I went to D.C., there was someone there working and we were able to connect. But it's um, one of the things to remember is like, I don't know any natives or that. And, and that's true that we are the smallest minority. In fact, I think we are. There was, there was a big hoopla with, I think it was CNN or somebody put up an election thing and they had the different races listed out, Caucasian, African-American, uh, Asian, and then it had something else. Oh, gosh. 
that went rampant through Indian country. And some people, of course, were highly offended. Most people, it was just hilarious. And they were making up signs and t-shirts saying, I'm something else. <laughs> so, so yes, we are, you know, even whenever you think about mainstream media, we're not included a lot of times. We're just, again, goes back to that forgotten race, but it's something to remember that we are still here. And that's something we, we like to share and to share in mainstream. Even if, if people listening are like, I don't know any, you never know when you're going to meet someone who's native or who may not feel comfortable sharing their heritage because they don't want to make you feel uncomfortable because they don't know how you would respond or, you know, what, and you're just so completely unfamiliar. We, we say ignorant, but you're just very unfamiliar with all the, the layers, there's the deep, deep layers that have been uh, of history that it is good for all of us to learn, I think, and, and to know the whole story, the atrocities, but also the beauty and the hope. And so that's why I'm grateful for with your listeners for the podcast, they're learning these things. So I think that's extraordinary. Again, thank you for bringing out this topic. Oh, of course. And I even said when we were talking before we started recording, you know, I wanted to make sure that I didn't say anything offensive, use a term that that wasn't well received. And I think maybe that's why a lot of people, we tend to just ignore the topic because mm. we don't know how to approach it. So just give us something simple that if we do find somebody, whether it's in our church, our community, our neighborhood, wherever we come across them, how can we broach the topic and not feel like we're being offensive, but letting them know we're interested in their story because we all have a story? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. I love how, you know, and this is going to be different for every person because some people might be offended if you just you know, you've just met them at church or something like, oh, I've always wanted to meet an American Indian or tell me about your culture. And I mean, someone at a, at a book signing, even with my mom, just grabbed her hand, was shaking her hand and said that I've always wanted to meet an Indian. And my mom was was not offended at all of that. You do that to someone else, they might get highly offended um, because we've been kind of held up again, this fascination. So we definitely have the racism issue and also equally as damaging at times is the, the stereotypes and the fascination. And th but there's nothing wrong with admiration, you know, to admire mm -hmm. someone's culture respectfully. You know, that's something I had a, a discussion with someone and, and that's what she wanted to do. She's like, I just, you know, I grew up around those. I'm not of that culture, but I have a great admiration for it. You know, I, I think there's a difference between appropriation and, and admiration. I talk about that in my, my writing course. But that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with having an admiration, I guess, versus a fascination. Even if you start out at that point being fascinated, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you did meet someone, I would encourage you to just get to know them first as a person, not their race or their culture or what makes them different from you, but just getting to know someone as a person. And then you'll know how to approach them, you know, in, in asking about their, their culture, their history. And, you know, say, I'd, I'd love to learn more about your people or how you grew up and, you know, anything you feel comfortable with sharing, but getting to know them um, based on their, who they are as a person versus their race, I think is, is really important. Just treating them as, as a person and not someone um, that's, you know, behind museum glass that you're, you're examining and, and admiring. So. What great wisdom. I love that. And you mentioned that you have a writing course. I do have a lot of writers who listen. And if this is a, a character that you have been wanting to write about and felt 
that, oh, I don't want to do this wrong. Sarah's your girl. So, (laughs) and if you just love to read about this culture and learn more, she has wonderful books too. So if someone wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, absolutely. So I'm going to give you two websites. One is fictioncourses.com. And if you want to go ahead and tag on fictioncourses.com forward slash stereotypes, I have a free ebook just for your writers. And it's five stereotypes to avoid when writing about Native Americans. So great little short resource. I've gotten a ton of, of positive feedback on that of how it's helping writers. So go get that and you'll be on my author mailing list. Feel free to reply to any of my emails and ask questions. I'm not someone who is easily offended by the by, by questions. I'm someone that you can go to and ask, you know, is this offensive or what do you think about this? So feel free to do that. And I do have that course. It's uh, called Fiction Writing American Indians, and that's available through fictioncourses.com. I also have ChoctawSpirit.com, and that's C-H-O-C-T-A-W, ChoctawSpirit.com. And that's the artist site that I share with my mother where we're putting out, we're, we're gathering some of that beauty that we talked about in our Choctaw history and culture, um, her through photography and jewelry and me through my books, and we're adding painting now. So Wonderful. Well, I will have links to all of that in the show notes. So please, please check out those websites, share them with friends that you think would be interested in admiring. I love, love that word, admiring this culture because it is so, so rich. And thank you for joining us and sharing that richness with us. Oh, you're very welcome, Lori. I appreciate you having me on. And we don't have a word for goodbye in the Choctaw language. We say, Chipiki, I'll see you again soon. I hope I do see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Let's take a moment here to dive into a true crime story from the Bible. It's one of Jesus's parables, and the message translation calls it the story of the greedy farmhands. It's from the 21st chapter of Matthew, and I'm going to read verses 33 through 39. Here's another story. Listen closely. There was once a man, a wealthy farmer, who planted a vineyard. He fenced it, dug a wine press, put up a watchtower, then turned it over to the farmhands and went off on a trip. When it was time to harvest the grapes, he sent his servants back to collect his profits. The farmhands grabbed the first servant and beat him up. The next one they murdered. They threw stones at the third, but he got away. The owner tried again, sending more servants. They got the same treatment. The owner was at the end of his rope. He decided to send his son. Surely, he thought, they will respect my son. But when the farmhands saw the son arrive, they rubbed their hands in greed. This is the heir. Let's kill him and have it all for ourselves. They grabbed him, threw him out, and killed him. Jesus asked his listeners, people like you and me, what they thought the landowner did when he came back. They were indignant and they said that he should kill the farmhands and get new ones who would do what was right. Jesus then told them that a story just like that is in the scriptures. And he read to them how the stonemason threw out the stone that is now the cornerstone. This infuriated the religious leaders because they knew Jesus was talking about how they rejected him. But instead of having their consciences convicted, the story ends with the religious leaders wanting to put Jesus in jail, but being afraid to because of how the people revered him as a prophet. The greed of the people in Killers of the Flower Moon reminded me of this parable. 
Those people wanted what belonged to someone else, and they were willing to kill to get it. And it's so easy for us to say, well, I might want some stuff, but I don't want to see anyone dead. But let's investigate further. In the story, we see the landowner, symbolizing God, send messengers several times to tenant farmers. These tenants didn't own the land. They were to use it to get a return for the owner. Are you saying ouch in your head yet? Everything we have is a gift from God, no matter how much or little we think it is. And it was given specifically to us so that we could use it to benefit others. That's a cornerstone of our faith. Whatever our talents are, our possessions, our knowledge, our experiences, let's all ask ourselves how we can use those things for someone else's benefit rather than being greedy and hanging on to it all for ourselves. That's an uncomfortable truth, an unlovely truth, but I want to know what you think. So send me an email at lori, L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com, or you can message me on social media. I love it when people are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.